Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 199 of the Fun With Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of both the Canadian and European Grand Prix from Montreal and Baku, Azerbaijan. I'm Robin Warner. And I am Jim Lau, and I think we'll throw in a little bit of coverage of the 24 Hours of Le Mans as well, because that is also an exciting race to follow. Because, wow, really. Yeah. And there's plenty of stories in that. So in chronological order, best as we can remember in the time since the Canadian Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton does his thing in Canada again. That's a thing that he's good at. Lewis Hamilton has raced in the Canadian Grand Prix 10 times. He has won five of those 10, including his very first Grand Prix win and his, I guess, penultimate recent win as well. He does very well at that place and... It was great to see him take the momentum from Monaco and turn it into another win. A little bit less good to see Nico Rosberg struggle for the second time in a row. But all in all, great race for Lewis Hamilton and a solid race for Mercedes. Yeah, and uh, of course, Hamilton won when I was there in 2010, uh, which is the last race I attended in person, which, man, that was a while ago now. It is not the last race you attended in person. Oh, of course not. With the... uh... The inaugural USGP. That is absolutely right. I am not good with timelines, which is why I think things are farther away than they are or closer than they are. That was the Grand Prix that, if we're going to get a little personal, do you remember the Fun with Hospitals blog post you wrote? Yes. That was kind of the turning point for you for your end of Fun with Hospitals when we were driving home from that Grand Prix. Yeah, man. That was uh, that was crazy times. I had back surgery for a tumor that was growing in my spine, and that was all kind of a thing that developed slowly over time. You, sir, had your own exciting hospital visits for something that developed very quickly over a very short amount of time, a gravity-induced situation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I can't be outdone. I'm, I'm very competitive, so I had a lot of catching up to do with you, Jim. <laughs> I know. And you're still going to have a lot of catching up to do because I, of course, have a uh, you know daughter who's almost two now, and then I, I you know, heard that you and your wife might be uh, expecting something coming soon. So I figured I was going to kind of lap you and have a second baby before you have yours. Not that there's a competition going or anything, but, you know. I came early many, many years ago, and I think my son is ready to follow suit. So we're going to have a race on our hands in terms of being lapped. But, uh, yeah, both Jim and I have children on the way. Both Jim and I have sons on the way. And both of those sons are expected to be here Right around, gosh, which Grand Prix are we going to (laughs) miss? I remember, so my daughter was born during qualifying for Spa in 2014. Uh, Not that that I, you know, remember that or anything, but it's on the Saturday. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a couple weeks. Uh, I'm I'm kind of in any week now mode with uh, with my wife. And I think you guys are just a little bit behind that. Yeah, my son is due race day of the German Grand Prix. But I think he'll come early. So I think my son might instead interrupt the Hungarian Grand Prix. Yeah, and I guess I'm more likely around Austria. Well, no, uh, Britain, probably. Uh, Fish and chips era. So uh, we'll see. Anyway, uh, where all these things happen. But uh, what, so what were we talking about? We were talking about the U.S. The Grand Canadian Prix. Grand Prix. Well, we were talking about the U.S. Grand Prix that we went to in 2012. Oh, but the yeah, last 20- one we attended. Yes, yes, yes. That was the one. We were in seats. We were in grandstands that was overlooking turn 12. So we saw the pass for the lead that Hamilton took over Sebastian Vettel. Another Hamilton victory, I guess. Uh, that's kind of the theme, right? So it was the last race that you and I went to was, yeah, 2012 USGP, Hamilton victory. The race I went to before that, 2010 Canadian Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton victory. And uh, that's, anyway, it's Canada. He's done it again. And uh, this was the the big turning around point for the championship where all of a sudden, you know, after Monaco, it was like, okay, the gap's not as crazy as it was. And then it was another win for Hamilton. And then 
uh, not so many points. It was what Nico Rosberg came fifth in Canada. And so it was all of a sudden everyone's talking about the thing you've been saying all season, which is there's lots of races to go. And it's stupid to try to predict now and say that there's no way Hamilton can come back because obviously this brought it uh, brought the gap right down. Uh, there's you know more to talk about uh, from the European Grand Prix after that. But it was a very solid performance for Hamilton and Rosberg ran into some trouble. So that's how that went down. I'm looking at my Formula One statistics right now. And what I find fascinating is when Nico Rosberg wins, it's much more likely for Lewis Hamilton to be on the podium. And when Lewis Hamilton wins, Nico Rosberg is suffering. Nico Rosberg was first, Hamilton second, Australia. Nico first, Hamilton third. That must have been China. Nico first, Hamilton seventh. Nico first, Hamilton second. Then the Spanish Grand Prix infamous uh, collision. But then when you look at the reversal, it was Hamilton winning the Monaco Grand Prix, Nico seventh. Hamilton winning the Canadian Grand Prix, Nico Rosberg fifth. So it tends to be that when Nico is behind his teammate, he suffers more than if Lewis is behind his. That's a weird little anomaly, I suppose. Probably means nothing. Oh, yeah, I would agree with the the last bit that um, there's so few, such a small sample size that, you know, it's not, uh, not something we can really say as a trend. I mean, I guess if I were to just think of that data, not knowing the bigger picture, I would say, okay, well, clearly Hamilton is the worst driver because the only time he wins is when his teammate has trouble. But in reality, I don't think that that's the case. So I guess we'll just, we'll keep an eye on your spreadsheet as more data is added to it, because that's always an exciting thing to sort of see how this resets the averages and the maximums and kind of the ratios of how many points people have gotten from each other and how the teammates compare and those kind of things. So. That's you know interesting thing every time uh, a race weekend is finished to see how that affects the standings. So, yeah, the Canadian Grand Prix overall had a lot of interesting things. This was the most competitive we saw Ferrari in many ways. Sebastian Vettel did, after all, finish second in the race. For a good chunk of the race, he was leading because of a brilliant lap one, I guess turn two technically, pass on both the Mercedes as Hamilton and Rosberg bumped into each other yet again in Canada on the first lap, but no damage was incurred this time around. And it just seemed like people wanted to look at strategy and wonder if that caused the problem. But ultimately, it looked like Ferrari and Vettel just couldn't quite keep up. And that was indeed what Sebastian said was the issue. Also, a solid performance from Valtteri Bottas to be on the podium in Canada, and well done to that team. In stark contrast to Massa, who uh, had a cooling problem and ended up 19th way far back in the whole setup. And it's, you know, I guess we haven't talked about the Haas guys in a little while because they had this brilliant start to the season, and then it really kind of tapered off. And in this case, there's 13th and 14th. So it's sad to see that their flash of unexpected success at the beginning of the season has tapered off into kind of a, a mid-pack thing. But hopefully those guys will regroup. I hear they get the new Ferrari Turbo soon to do that. And McLaren Honda, a very mixed day for them as well, with uh, Fernando Alonso 11th just out of the points, Jensen Button uh, only completing nine laps and having a power unit failure. So really too bad to see those guys kind of go back into uh, some familiar territory, but I guess it is what it is. I honestly don't remember as much of the Canadian Grand Prix. As I mentioned on the last show, I was driving around Canada. I was actually in Montreal the week before the race, and I got to see some of the preparations and stuff like that. But I was still on a road trip when the actual race was happening, so I watched it late, and it was uh, not our usual schedule of being able to get together and watch the race and do our thing together. It doesn't get etched into my memory quite as well. I don't have much else to say on it myself. It's very true, and Canada was also many races ago. It's certainly in terms of importance. <laughs> but there were a couple other things that I think are worth mentioning about Canada. Something I've been keeping a fairly close eye on because it really took me aback that it happened 
Daniel Kafia in Canada finished 12th, Max Verstappen 4th, and Max Verstappen actually finished ahead of Nico Rosberg, 4th versus 5th. But what's more telling is that Nico Rosberg was trying to pass Max Verstappen for a good 10 laps and just couldn't find a way around him. Nico even spun the car in a last lap, last ditch effort to do the pass. So just immediately after Monaco, Max is showing superb car control, superb maturity, and really solid performances. So from the switch, Max Verstappen has finished first. Then he was 18th in Monaco, fourth and eighth. And Kafiat has finished 10th, 20th, 12th, and 22nd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> so it's not going well for the Russian. We just have to be honest about that. Moving on to Baku, Azerbaijan, if I may. I was excited about this race going into it. Just uh, I knew very, very little about Azerbaijan and Baku, but the little bit that I did know seemed pretty cool. And now that we've gotten to see all the nice pictures from the city and from the street circuit and all that from uh, Formula One coverage, I have to say it looks like a really, really cool place. A cool mix of really old buildings and castles and, you know, thousand-year-old streets and stuff like that with modern architecture and modern style and all that. And a, an interesting racetrack, I would say. And I don't mean that necessarily as a bad thing, but it got us some really nice shots with the tight, windy sections of the track with some of these up and over hill sections where we have a nice shot of the car where you've got these cool castles and stuff and you have the cars coming up and going around corners and uh, seeing that. Uh, so tight, twisty street stuff mixed with these sort of ludicrously long straightaways. I would give the circuit, um, I don't know, B plus or something. It, you know, there's probably ways it could be improved, but it was uh, it was sort of interesting and definitely suited the Mercedes, at least one of them. And uh, Toto Wolf says, oh, we need more tracks like this. This is great, which I guess you would say if you're the guy that, whose car dominates there. I thought it was an interesting track worth checking out. And this is exactly what a country or a, or a city or region should want out of a Formula One race is people all over the world who either know very little or nothing about their city to see, oh man, Baku, Azerbaijan. I didn't have a picture of what this place would look like in my mind, but I look at it and it looks cool. So we didn't have too many logistical problems. I guess the, they have to work out in their random giant plastic bags flying onto track situation. That was a that was a problem that I guess you could say the, the city should address. But otherwise, the marshalling seemed reasonable. The track surface itself was good. And it all uh, you know came together pretty well, except that without other kind of drama and things being shaken up too much, the race itself was fairly boring. Do you agree with that? Well, let me start with the circuit. It is, as you say, it has a lot of interesting features. I love that it's as long as it is. I love that it's as fast as it is. We saw 350 kilometers an hour. That's right around 230 miles an hour top speeds. That's really high for any Formula One track. And then the fact that it was a street circuit to boot, that was quite impressive to see. It was, in my mind, a fairly interesting combination of corners. That said, some of those corners were a touch questionable in terms of safety. And there is a small part of me that sees that and is refreshed. It's like, yeah, let's not try to turn this into something so stricken with fear that we can't ever see the cool stuff that racing is because racing is risk. That's part of it. But at the same time, most of me is like, yeah, but we don't need to be blunt and in your face about it either. If there's simple ways to make the track safer, in a couple areas, I would be pro that. The other bit that was concerning, I felt, was although it was very cool that they were kind of driving around the old parts of Baku City and then you were also touching on the new parts. So just as you mentioned, Jim, there's this real distinct and vivid difference between the old architecture and the new. 
And to see modern Formula One cars mixed in between was really a fantastic visual. But apparently some of the streets they were racing on were actually cobblestone. And they laid down plastic and paved over that plastic or something along those lines. That does <laughs> they in, And they, in fact, had pavement issues in some place because the curbing wouldn't stay down. Some of the bolts were coming loose. So there's logistic things like that trouble me a bit. And that isn't a deal breaker for me because overall, I do think that it was, as you mentioned, a very good venue. But those are things that I would definitely want to see addressed. And finally, this is a deal breaker. We can't have a Grand Prix during the 24 hours of Le Mans. That to me was a mistake. And that is a reason not to have a Grand Prix versus have one. Yeah, I think I wouldn't necessarily say go so far as to not have the Grand Prix, but yeah, find a scheduling time that works that allows a separate weekend for the Formula One event in Le Mans, especially for the possibility of having some driver changeover, of course, like Nico Hulkenberg last year. So anyone who's in Formula One who can work out some some deal. I mean, so many people are sponsored by the same kind of companies in both things. I mean, I think Red Bull has drivers all over the world racing on any given weekend that you could imagine as some kind of tie up with one team or another. Same goes for, you know, Monster Energy and all these other companies that have sponsors all over the place. Because, yeah, you could imagine what if uh, Alonzo and Button went out and were taking part in uh, and various WEC teams or whatever. But to be able to do Le Mans and uh, not have that interfere with Grand Prix, I think would be great. And schedule-wise, yeah, I was... Uh, I was following 24 Hours of Le Mans fairly closely this year as I was tidying up around the house and uh, you know doing the general things you do, uh, hanging out. I was uh, keeping track of it, and it was a lot of fun to to watch it. It was a very thrilling race. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit more, but uh, to go right from the checkered flag at Le Mans was at basically exactly the same time as race start at uh, at Baku. So if I were you know didn't have TiVo basically and had to follow these things live, it would have been sort of an improbable situation to do so. And I, I agree that if we can, in years past, it has been on separate weekends. I think it was like six years in a row or something where they managed to make them not, you know, not collide. But with this record 21 races, there's only so many good race weekends when there's certain times when they don't want to hold races on, you know, I'm thinking Easter and some of these holidays or whatever. But the way the schedules have to fit around, so fitting another race in right in the, in the middle of the season here could only go on so many weekends. And in this case, this is where it fell. But there's a story going around that there are three races that may not make it to the calendar next year. Uh, Bernie Ecclestone is calling into question Germany because it's due to be back at the Nürburgring, who, as you recall, couldn't do it last year. Italy, where they're saying maybe, you know, Monza doesn't have a deal for 2017 and there's a very low chance of it going to Imola. And then Canada, he's asking for some improvements to the uh, facilities and all that. He says, oh, well, if those improvements aren't made, then no race for you next year. The hope being they could work out deals in potentially all of those cases to keep the races on there. But 18 rounds instead of 21 does sound a bit more reasonable, but uh, man, I'd hate to lose Canada. That would be lame. Or or Italy, for that matter. Right. Or the Nürburgring, no, for hold that on. matter. Can't we, can't we pick some other ones? <laughs> those actually, those are three of my favorites. The Nürburgring, it isn't the most incredible, but it's still a good racetrack. Monza is incredible and unique and aspiring. You can't lose. And Canada is not far behind. The worst race in Canada is still pretty darn good. And the passion that the fans have... It's one of the best ones to have. And, of course, it's a complaint about facilities, not about crowds or reaction or TV response. It, obviously, the fans like it. Obviously, the drivers like it. But, no, he didn't have a gold-plated bathroom or something. I mean, it, I'm sorry. That's Canada, especially, for those reasons, that is really hard for me to take. And I have a hard time hearing that. And just as a quick follow-up. I'm agreeing with you. I'm not saying we cancel the Grand Prix. I'm saying you reschedule the Grand Prix so that it does not fall on 24 hours of Le Mans. To me, that was really frustrating. Also in Europe, Force India had great success. 
Checo Perez qualifying the car second. He did, of course, have a five-grid stop penalty, so he had to move down to seventh place. But that was a super quality lap for Checo Perez, and then not as strong for Nico Hulkenberg. He ended up 12th. But solid performance in qualifying, and Checo was able to turn that into a podium spot, getting third place to get on the podium right behind Rosberg and Vettel. So that was a big story for them. The track suited them with a combination of the engine and the handling and all that. And that's a nice continuation to the recent success they've had. A little bit more bittersweet for Nico Hulkenberg. He ended up ninth, only getting a couple points. But overall, a very solid run for Force India. And certainly for Checo, this is looking like a really good season coming together for him. And hopefully he can continue to do this. Uh, Of course, that's helped by the fact that Hamilton was farther back and had issues with his car and was dealing with that. But definitely very solid performance for Checo. And Ferrari, Vettel was right there. And this is another time where they kind of look at the strategy and think, man, Ferrari really could have potentially had better success here and ended up second and fourth is solid for them, but they're still quite a ways behind the uh, Mercedes. A lot of people kind of questioning, are Ferrari kind of throwing away their chances here as uh, as the season goes on, where it seems like, yeah, they have pace and the car is not that much slower, but strategy-wise, there have been some questionable calls and Raikkonen is still there doing his number two driver thing and he's usually a couple places back and this race was no exception for that. With Force India, it's really pretty impressive. First of all, Hulkenberg had a lot more speed than 12th in qualifying, but he made, I just have to say, he made a silly mistake. He was going at a pace that was comfortably within the top 10 to make a Q3 run, and he had like a small lockup or he lost a 10th because he was passing someone off pace or something along those lines, and he backed out. He backed out of the car after Sector 2. Then he got on the radio afterwards and he said, well, I don't have enough time for another lap. And the engineers were like, yeah, and you were on pace to qualify. Nico was like, well, why didn't you tell me? And the engineer said, I did tell you. So there was, I guess, the Formula One engineer driver version of a fight on the radio. But it was, I completely believe the engineer, it was Nico's fault for not just staying in it and getting a lap that was good enough for Q3 because had he gotten into Q3, that wouldn't have been his lap anyway. So Of course, qualifying 12th, he was mired in mid-pack traffic a bit more and couldn't compete as well as Checo did. Perez has really been impressing. Okay, so he follows up his podium at Monaco. He had a reasonable 10th place finish in Canada, but then to be on the podium again in the European Grand Prix and in qualifying, he was was the only guy within a second of Nico Rosberg in Q3. It was Force India that was setting the pace other than Mercedes. It was so impressive to see him driving that well. I think Perez is confident. I think the car suits him. And I think now has the maturity and experience to really excel. And this is an excellent time to remind people that we raced each other and I was faster than he was. So Force India, you guys could have someone even faster than that if you hired me. Man, that's uh, strong words and a a throwback to something we haven't heard of for a little while. Uh, The funny thing is, Checo says the Force India didn't expect to be as competitive as they were in Baku. Uh, He's sort of like, yeah, we're expecting to be strong around here, but not that good. And so he was so excited about this as P2 and quality, of course, before his penalty. It's it's kind of funny. Sometimes you get the the opposite. We were talking about McLaren and Ron Dennis being like, oh, we're going to be the next champions. And there's obviously that's what's going to happen. And then to have a, a small scrappy team like this who just comes out without any kind of crazy press releases in advance saying, oh, you guys, everything, we're going to be amazing. But just they say it with a lap time. He comes out and says, yeah, I, I qualify P2 and deal with that. And then to be completely honest about it and comes out, you know, or we think it's being completely honest to come out and say, yeah, we actually didn't think we were going to be that fast, but eh, look at that. Uh, I think that that's cool. It shows a cool attitude. And so then the, the question is then as Checo, do you stay on with Force India and try to 
continue the success there? Or if he gets an offer to jump ship to a bigger team, is he gun shy about that after his experience with McLaren? I mean, the people are talking about, is there a connection with Ferrari? Could he end up going over there? What are the prospects for him? And for now, it seems like he's pretty happy at Force India and, and they're doing pretty well for him. But um, you have to imagine at some point he may want to take the next step. Perez has made it pretty well known that he's interested in driving for a top team. He still has, I guess you could say, unfinished business when it came to gaining and then losing the McLaren seat. I think he feels like he deserves a Ferrari-level ride, and he's starting to win me over a bit with his performances. He's been quite good. But at the same time, look at Force India. They are a small team. They are not the biggest budgeted team anywhere near it, and yet they are fifth in the Constructors' Championship, and solidly so. They have 59 points compared to 32 points for Toro Rosso. They gained on Williams a little bit. Williams is currently fourth with 90 points. And I'm not predicting any kind of major gain where Force India ends up fourth in the constructors. But I think they're going quick enough to keep Williams honest. That's quite impressive for a team that is not only small, but are also going through the financial woes that they are via their team principal, Vijay Malia, and all the troubles he has. I have to give not just credit to Perez, but to Force India for doing just a killer job. I think they've been very impressive, and I think the European Grand Prix was the most tangible realization of that, right? I mean, to qualify second, I that was truly astounding. Yeah, so I hope to see uh, more success for Force India and for Checo because it is a good code of underdog story, and uh, there's certainly some tracks coming up that should suit them pretty well in the rest of the season. We still have many races to go. But the other big story of this race, of course, was the disparity between Nico Rosberg's race, which was essentially flawless and you know couldn't have been a whole lot better, with Lewis Hamilton, who, of course, started back in 10th and then had to try to work his way up, but then had the, was it the D-rate issue where his car was stuck in the wrong mode and there was this awkward back and forth on the radio to his engineers about, hey guys, I'm trying to get it in the right mode. What's the problem? They say, oh, it's not a problem with the car. You're in the wrong setting mode, but we can't tell you what setting you should fix because we're not allowed to tell you that kind of information anymore. And it was just kind of this stupid back and forth. And it's like, seriously, you can't even tell me the thing. And Jim, uh, Jim, 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 let's role play. Okay. I'll be Lewis Hamilton. You be the engineer. Okay. Right. Oh, bloody bollocks. I can't get the car to go quickly. It's in D-rate. Uh, who is it that just got into Hamilton's car? That didn't sound anything like Lewis. And uh, something's going wrong. I think we've got the wrong radio message here. Can we, can we get back to Lewis, please? Oh, bother, governor. You know it's me, Lewis. <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Let's try again. We'll kill the I won't worry about my accent. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, my car is slow out of the turns. I don't have full power. What's going on? It's the wrong setting. You got to uh got to fix your settings. Nothing wrong with the car. This is your this is your problem. Okay, that's that's cool. Just what what setting do I need to change it to? Afraid we can't tell you that, son. Okay. Well, if it were a setting with the torque map, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, afraid we can't tell you that. Okay, let's say this setting made the car have different suspension settings. Would that theoretically help something like this? Just theoretically. Theoretically? I'm sorry, Lewis. I'm afraid I can't tell you that. Okay, okay, okay. True or false? This setting will help me. Smaller than a bread box. Repeat, smaller than a bread box. <laughs> I could go on for way too long, so we won't do that. But yeah, it was pretty silly. 
And Lewis did eventually sort it out. But what was so fascinating about this is he made some good decisions here. I think thinking about the championship, he got fast lap at the race and then he immediately backed off. He said, I don't have enough laps to gain any real positions here. So I'm just going to put it back in a more conservative mode and save this engine because I'm already behind an engine and who knows what's going to happen for this championship. So he just kind of backed off and took fifth and, you know, took it on the chin. But at the same time that Lewis was dealing with this problem, Kimi Raikkonen was also dealing with an issue and Ferrari's engineers also wouldn't tell Kimi and Kimi was getting irate. He was saying, certainly you can tell me just yes or no to this question. They're like, sorry, Kimi, I can't. And he's like this. <laughs> he was yelling. It was, He was yelling. He was swearing. It was comical but in a, in a very entertaining way and uh, of course what we, we were talking about when we were watching this race is why don't they just have some code words and say something like okay well you know hey there's there's a wind coming out of the east or something uh which i guess maybe that would be performance but you know come up with something that would fit within the letter of the rules that would tell the driver the right thing to do but not be obvious to an outside observer and that was your question to me and i said well maybe that is maybe that's what happened and it sounds to us like kimi was all confused and his engineers couldn't tell him anything but in fact their way of saying no we can't tell you that was, you know, that that means one thing. And if he says, afraid per the rules, Kimi, we're not allowed to divulge that information, that would tell him the other thing. And so maybe that was what was happening. But yeah, looking through Lewis's, I see I have a radio transcript here. I'll put this in the, a link to this in the show notes. There is another exchange that I forgot about where they say, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to find the switch, you know, can't change it. They said, oh, you know, nothing you're doing wrong, just a setting. He says, is it this? You know, the engineer says, they can't say. And Lewis goes, I may not finish this race because I'm going to try to change everything. And the response, don't advise that, Lewis. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, just just start hitting all the buttons. It's like, no, uh, please don't do that. Like, I guess at some point the performance coaching was such that it's like, don't try all the buttons. I guess you could see someone being a real stickler for the rules, saying, oh, that was that was telling the driver what to do. So uh, that's a problem. But obviously that did uh, did not happen. Then it uh, eventually, I think, you know, midway through the race, he did get the power back. Um, he says, okay, Lewis, you're the fastest car on track. He says, yeah, thanks, got power. And I thought at the time he said something a little more explicit of like, no kidding, got my power or something. But transcript I have here says, thanks, man. So. Yeah, he did figure it out, and I'm sure they'll have some chats about that with read through the user manual and all that between now and the coming races. The as we mentioned though, Nico Rosberg apparently had the same issue in, on his car; it just something didn't get out of a start mode or something correctly. But he, for whatever reason, was able to uh, was able to diagnose and get through that much quicker, and it was not a problem and carry on. So, in this this day and age of Formula One, how good you are as a driver and how much success you have is partly your car control, moving the you know steering wheel, gas pedal, brake pedal, clutch but also how well you can navigate the buttons on your steering wheel and avoid penalties and figure out all the menus and stuff like that. So whether that should be the case or not is up for debate, but that does seem to be the case that it is right now. Well, that's exactly what I want to debate right now. We've talked about this in the past, and I expressed that I felt that this radio band was a silly, unnecessary band-aid to the core problem, which was they thought the cars were too complicated. But now we've seen in an actual live race with two different drivers, real frustration and the lack of the engineers telling the drivers what to do had nothing to do with making the race more exciting, in my opinion. This was a real-world example of how silly that rule is, and I see no purpose of keeping it. I think that should be dropped just like whatever that was knockout qualifying thing they tried. Yeah, it's a weird one because... It's not the case that someone's saying the moment that we can't tell the drivers what to do from the pit wall, the racing will all of a sudden be more exciting. But it's a little bit like we've seen with the clutches and the and the start positions and stuff like that, where 
we didn't know as fans what exactly was being done with in terms of setting bite points and, and test starts and all these kind of things. So it wasn't a big thing if somebody said, oh, they're going to have less coaching on starts. That wouldn't have necessarily sounded like a great thing. But the result, at least so far, has been a little bit less predictability in everyone getting off the line safely. You know, we've seen some amazing starts from Ferrari. We've seen some lackluster starts from Hamilton specifically. Um, and, and of course, everything in between. We've seen more variation, and that's been interesting. So it's not always a clear case of cause and effect. But my think, my thinking on the radio ban is that if every team is allowed to tell the drivers, okay, here's what you want to do now based on the performance and based on all the information we have on the pit wall and all the telemetry that's streaming from the car and all the information they have, temperatures and pressures and sensors and all these sorts of things, that it's a different kind of arms race where it's it's taking, it's sort of extending the driver's brain where the driver knows exactly all the stuff he can see from his onboard sensors, right? His feel for everything, his eyes, his ears and everything. And he can make decisions on that. But then it's kind of back to being an arms race of everyone on the pit wall on each of the teams can then also be looking at all the data they're streaming across there and literally using supercomputers, calculating what all the permutations of if we change this, if we pit now, if we do this later, and you know, if we tell them to push now and then back off later, how, what's the fuel flow? What's the weight going to be and all that? And the problem with that is back to a small team having no chance of being able to compete with the bigger teams because not only is it about building the cars and making the deals and getting the practice time and getting the testing and doing all the things, but then it's yet another axis on which teams with more money can spend more of it to coach their driver along and do more and more. And it's another step away from the purity of, wow, this guy is a really good driver. This guy is not quite as good. And the really good driver was able to win because he's got this cunning mind for making good decisions and thinking in terms of race strategy and thinking in terms of championship points and all those kind of things, as opposed to, yeah, this guy's a good driver and he can you know haul the car around. You still have to do that, of course. But he was being told when to push hard, when to back off, and exactly what mode to be in all the time. I think there is a step away from the purity of a skilled driver being one of the main factors in whether a car wins or loses a Grand Prix. Here's the problem I have with that. You're right. You're absolutely right about that. And we want, in general, we want the purity of the sport to maintain and actually thrive in Formula One. That's important to both of us, I think. But We've already gotten so far away from the purity of driving the car. There's so much telemetry and sensors and computers operating a Formula One car. The engineers have access to all these different things, settings, suspension, differential, throttle mapping, torque mapping, hybrid assist mapping, obviously the engine and on and on. They have so much data and control of the car because of all these various settings and sensors in the first place. If you really want the purity of the sport, you take that off the car. That becomes a much more pure racing machine where it is the driver controlling the machine and nothing else. But we're already so far away from that with all the different technology that is built into the car. Why would you then remove this one tiny last step which is the engineers reading the data, translating, if they see an issue, telling the driver how to fix it. By banning that, how does that improve the racing or improve the show in any way? I thought I just answered that with the idea that if one team just goes ahead and dominates because they've got all the money and the small teams never can move forward or become competitive, that's the kind of thing that maybe Force India would not have been able to be as successful if Ferrari had been able to be on the radio with Sebastian Vettel and Kimi Raikkonen to coach them through all the things and 
uh, Force India not having as much money wouldn't be able to do the same thing for their drivers. There can be the, a difference there that, you know, just by Valtteri Bottas having a really good weekend and being able to really muscle the car around. Yeah, but he wasn't getting as much coaching from his team because they don't have the the money to have all these extra people employed and all these extra technology just to come up with these real-time strategy calls and, and tell them exactly what fuel mode to be in and exactly what wing settings and diff settings and all that. So I'm not sure that how much of an actual difference on the ground, but all these differences are potential small things that uh, add up to just kind of what kind of racing do we want to see. The natural extension, though, is rather than if you're the driver in the car and I'm on the pit wall and I tell you, oh, yeah, go to this fuel mode for right now, and that'll be better. Or change your brake balance to be that based on the wear of this or that. That's one thing. And then you have to make the change on the car. But then to have the actual computer telemetry to say, okay, well, let's take the humans out of the loop rather than me telling you in English and your brain has to understand it and parse it and then make the change happen with your hands. If we allow that, then isn't it safer if, if I just send a message directly to the car right from my computer to the car's computer to say, okay, go ahead and make this change and do that. It's like, are, it's, is it how good, how well the driver can understand and parse sentences while he's driving and then make button presses on the wheel? Or if the drivers and the computers have all this telemetry by your argument, why not take it a step further and have my computer talk right to the one in the car? And that's case is kind of extending the car's brain to also include all the data that's coming on the pit wall and all the people that are working on it, and then make these continuous adjustments as you go around. That is an interesting technical achievement and something that you could do that would be interesting, but that's definitely the case where the higher-end teams and the, the just bigger budgets would continue to win out over lesser ones, So, and it's the kind of thing that's much harder to overcome for a smaller team. What you just described is two-way telemetry, and Formula One had that over a decade ago. They banned that, and I'm kind of an all-or-nothing person in this situation. If you want it to be much more pure, then make it much more pure. Make the rules state clearly that many, many, many fewer things are adjustable. Many, many fewer things have settings. It's just this way and that's it. So you have not a diff with 20 different settings. You have a diff. You have one singular thing that either fails or it doesn't, and you don't have sensors and you don't have ways to monitor it, and it's completely up to the driver to feel the car and to race to the best visibility given the machinery he has if something's failing or not. Or you say, man, there's so much technology here, so much going on. We just give them full control. Each team has control. My personal belief is that the smaller teams can still do well if they're clever. And Haas is a good example of you can take more from big teams if you want and allocate your budget accordingly so that you can afford the things that keep you competitive. Or Formula One can change the rule book to allow less of this to go on. But to just ban some conversation on the radio just becomes farcical and silly, in my opinion. Well, with a lot of these things, it's a matter of where you draw the line. And uh, similar, I guess, with the double points or knockout qualifying, where on some level, there's the thinking is not bad to think, okay, we want to keep these things interesting and not have somebody be able to clinch a championship, but it's just how they enact it. You know, it's the, the, the devil's in the implementation. And this is another one of those cases where it ends up in kind of an awkward thing. The question I guess we'll see is how this moves on for the rest of the year. If, first of all, if the rules get changed, but also if this is a problem again, or if this was kind of a one-off with Lewis was already having a bad weekend and just kind of got too far into his own head trying to think about it and then not just sort of taking a step back and, and making a sensible call, but then able to go find the switch and change it. And, you know, eventually he was able to make the change and it was okay. But I don't know if this is as big of a problem as it seems just coming after, after this one race. I guess we'll see going forward if it, it continues to be a thing. Yeah, and I do have to say congratulations to Nico Rosberg. He performed much better in qualifying. He kept his car clean. Baku qualifying and Baku practice was riddled with different kinds of lockups and hitting the wall and mistakes. It really made everyone think that the race was going to be nuts, several yellow flags, and a lot of attrition. It was 
a very clean race, not a single, nothing other than a couple yellow flags thrown here and there. So it was a very clean race, and Nico Rosberg did a much better job of staying close to the limits, but within the limits of his car. Hamilton had just a miserable Saturday. He could not keep his car clean. Hats off to Nico here. He performed superbly, had what they call a grand slam. He got the pole, I think the fastest lap of the race, and also won the race. And got breakfast at Denny's afterwards. hey Thus completing the Grand Slam. Speaking of jewels in various crowns, you want to talk Le Mans for a second? Why don't we? It was, well, it was an epic race. It always is an epic race, 24 hours worth. It, <laughs> I, I just come away with it just amazed. I'll put it to you this way. If someone wrote a movie about Le Mans, And that's how the movie ended. The guys that were winning and comfortably doing so, all of a sudden on the second to last lap have an issue. And on the last lap, car comes to a stop and they eventually get it going, but it doesn't matter. They've they've lost the race. No one would believe that. They say that's way too outlandish and a silly movie. Here it happens in real life and it's just dumbfounding. Yeah, and of course, it's Toyota you're talking about who was in the lead for most of the race. I mean, except for some pit cycles where uh, Porsche had it for a little bit. And furthermore, you know, with the, the backstory of, of the movie you're talking about is that Toyota has come second several times in a row now and has tried at this a couple of times. I mean, talking 20 years ago, they were trying this and um, and coming second and, you know, having having these moments of, oh, man, maybe this is the year, maybe this is the year. And this time for the longest duration, they was like, OK, it's not they're not running away with it. They have maybe, you know, less than a lap, maybe about a minute of a, a margin of victory or, mar- you know, a lead over the other cars. You know, as it cycles on, they're close enough. They're within a pit stop and, and things are all happening. So it's like, okay, this is honest. They've earned it. It's not some crazy rule infraction where they have some secret and, you know, nothing crazy. It's just they're working hard. They're doing the thing. They're staying out in front of the competition. And then, as you mentioned, yeah, after 23 hours and 57 minutes, the car dies. It's like, what? You know, how is that even, uh, how does that even happen? Yeah. And then the Porsche guys, um, having a mix of emotions of, man, we had a good fight going. These guys were doing well. Oh, man, that sucks to see them go. Oh, wait, that means we win. Like, that's awesome. So it's this, you know, rush of emotion for all the Porsche guys. There was a, a really nice video that came out uh, that Porsche put out as a sort of a PR thing that said after, you know, 24 hours and well fought and, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's it's ultimately a Porsche thing about how great, you know, Porsche, you know, durability and, and the endurance and performance and all that, but also has a, a you know, a very seemingly heartfelt nod to Toyota being worthy competitors and, Hey, can't wait to do this again next year and and whatever. So it's, I think, good sportsmanship on both sides. Toyota actually put out the, uh, an image that I saw floating around that was one of Jamie Price, our photographer friend. Uh, he was there with Toyota. One of his photos with words from, from Toyota CEO uh, on it talking about how, you know, even though people call us sore losers or whatever, which I don't think anyone did, we fought hard. We believe in what we did. We're going to come back stronger. And thank you for everyone for believing in us. And good job for Porsche to actually getting it done. Partly it's nice in that it's always 24 hours of interesting racing, if not exciting. In this case, it was pretty much 24 hours of exciting racing. But there's also this respect and camaraderie that I think is sort of unique to endurance racing, where whoever wins, they still had to do it for 24 hours. There's no shortcut to 24 hours. That's, you know, I think shows in kind of the, the attitudes off off track and the, uh, the kind of the rivalries and stuff that happen. And for the first time in, in a few years, I you know was also watching the GT category with a lot of interest. I'm usually just a big fan of the prototypes and uh, seeing everything at the very sharp end of the grid. But in this case, well, with the you know all new reimagined Ford GT and the GTE Pro class having having them here to race, and then ended up of course victorious in GTE was a big story for them. 
and a big deal for the team. It was it's funny because it was sort of this factory backed Ford team with three cars up against you know the, the Ferrari that four came. cars. Oh, that's right, it was four cars, Jim. Up against uh, the privateer Ferrari that was you know within a few seconds of them at the end. So Ferrari can still say they've you know had really good success there, but it is going to see. Um, of course, for the the Ford story is is huge because this is the 50th anniversary of the you know famous 1966 podium lockout for Ford over Ferrari and all that. So there's a lot of stories going around in all directions. I mean, in the prototypes, it was a dramatic finish. In the GT cars, it was dramatic. I didn't follow so much in the, the lower level series, the other classes, you know, the, the AM classes or whatever. But yeah, just as a race that's as special as it is, has all the history, but also the the technology and the several classes and all that. It's just always a fun thing to follow. And uh, it was cool. I mean, I'm a Toyota fan as well. I was sort of, you know, a lot of my first cars were Toyotas and all that. Uh, Ford owner now, it's just fun, kind of funny how these things, you know, that, that there is some some road rev- relevance in the uh, GT cars. Not that I drive a Ford GT or anything, but, you know, EcoBoost. So good times to uh, to see it happen and follow it. And it's too bad that uh, it happened on the same weekend as Formula One because that made it a lot busier and meant we didn't have any other big, exciting Formula One names in the, uh, in the Le Mans field. You mentioned Jamie Price. Jamie Price, as you said, was working for Toyota during the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And Jamie spoke about how welcoming and how wonderful it was to work for Toyota as a racing team. He felt more so than any other gig he's had that he was part of the team as a photographer and really just appreciated the way Toyota operated and was genuinely gutted when what happened happened. I really hope that we can talk to Jamie about it sometime soon because I'm sure to be there and to live it must have been just a unique, crazy experience. But what I think the most important takeaway from the Toyota performance is they were the fastest car and they were the fastest car for so close to 24 hours, which means Audi and Porsche are not going to have any kind of easy stride. Toyota is coming and they are going to be aggressive. The other thing that's interesting about Toyota, too, is you're right. They finished second Le Mans before, but they actually won the World Endurance Championship a couple years ago. So they've been very competitive here. And, yeah, it's just a matter of time before everything comes together and they get it sorted out. Now, the Ford experience was really something because, as you said, there was a whole lot of history steeped around the fact that this was the 50th anniversary from their overall win. And that was Ford competing against Ferrari. And just coincidentally, it was Ford competing against Ferrari again this year because Corvette, for whatever reason, was way behind. And actually, Corvette is blaming the FIA for the regulations that were around turbocharged cars compared to naturally aspirated cars. Because the Corvette is naturally aspirated, the Ferrari and the Ford were both turbocharged. So that was an interesting anomaly. But for Ford to do that, it was their 50th anniversary to win again, but it was also their first time back to Le Mans for a factory effort in a long, long time. Now, this is different because it's a class win, not an overall win, but if you look at what a Le Mans car looked like 50 years ago, they looked a lot more like GTE pros than they did like the current prototypes. For the GTE amateur class, there's actually a nice tie into that. That was an American Ferrari team. It was nice, in a sense, to see the United States do so well in this year's 24 Hours of Le Mans. So we can have a Go America situation, feel that for a couple seconds. But as you said, Jim, overall, it was a thrilling, competitive 24-hour sprint race. It's just become an amazing event. We talk about rules a fair amount in Formula One. The World Endurance Championship rules... I have to say, they're quite good. They make for exciting racing, compelling machinery, and just fascinating story points. 
Yes, I am now looking forward to Le Mans 2017 to see how things shake up for next year. But back to Formula One for a moment, and it is time to talk about predictions. So we've got two races to cover here with varying levels of success for various people involved. So Canada, you, sir, among many other people, had astutely predicted Hamilton Hamilton for zero points. 26 people chose that, and well done to all of you, including you, Robin. I somewhat more stupidly had predicted that Rosberg would be on pole and that Vettel would win, which got me two points. There were two others that joined me in that. You, sir, and I quote, wanted to shake things up. And it was shaken. Only very slightly. Damien, the statistical heuristical model, predicted Ricardo Hamilton, which was good for three points, so not a terrible showing, but that is what it is. At the bottom of the field, Rio Harianto's own predictions for himself were not so great. Honorable mention, button, button, 32 points, not excellent. European Grand Prix. This is Baku. Now, we did have 14 folks predicting Rosberg, Rosberg for zero points, and well done to all of them. I personally was in 15th spot with a Rosberg Vettel prediction, which netted me one point. So after seeing practice times and all that, I was like, man, I should have switched my vote over to Hamilton. And then after seeing qualifying, I thought, man, I'm glad I didn't switch my vote over to Hamilton because a lot of people did have Hamilton for pole position, uh, which got a bunch of points. Hamilton, Hamilton overall for the uh, pole and win which is what Damien had and what you, Robin, had, was good for 13 points and a big tie for 53rd place in the predictions overall. So overall, it is now Nico Rosberg in the lead on his own, predicting himself over and over and over again. He has 35 points and in nipping at his heels in second place, two people, Gustavo Barrichello and Rich Damby, both with 36 points, just one point behind. Jim, you, sir, are eighth overall with 45 points. Not too shabby. If you scroll down far, far, far away, Damien is in 34th place with 78 points, and I am in 40th place with 91 points. Closer to Damien than I have been in a while, but not ahead. You're beating Valtteri Botas by 10 points, so you got that. Yes, and I am beating other folks like Rio Harianto by over 200 points. <laughs> <laughs> he is in last place with 293. Jackson Bockhorst with 273 points is not faring that much better. But you, sir, Mr. Bockhorst, are not last because Rio Harianto is still filled with hubris and refuses to predict anything but himself on pole and win the race every time. That is the past and brings us to the present. Let's talk Austria. Next race on the calendar. This is, of course, the Red Bull ring, although Red Bull themselves are not super uh, excited about the race. They're saying, yeah, actually, this this, uh, race doesn't suit us super well. Question is, who to predict for that? We've got previous winners, Nico Rosberg 2014, Nico Rosberg 2015. Do you think it'll be Nico Rosberg again in 2016? No, I don't. Mm -hmm. I think that Lewis Hamilton will get right back on his horse. His horse is a Mercedes. And I think he will ride that horse to pole position and on to win the race to rid himself of the shackles of failure and to once again tighten the championship up, not spread it out yet again. I am sticking with Lewis Hamilton on pole and Lewis Hamilton to win the race. That is what will happen. I was thinking ham ham as well. I was off the ham train for a moment, but thinking that I should be back on it. But I think I'm going to split my strategy a little bit and think Lewis Hamilton will do well in qualifying, so I will predict him to be the pole position. However, I think it might be time for a Ferrari level of success. I think if uh, if Vettel can do a 
sweet start, get around the Mercedes, and then they don't mess him up with the strategy, maintain some pace, do some things, think some stuff, he might win the race. So I'm going with Hamilton for pole, Vettel for the win prediction. Submitting that now, and we'll see how that goes. Damien, of course, thinks it's going to be Rosberg, Rosberg. So we will see how that pans out. Ooh, all right. <laughs> uh, all right, indeed. Yes, possibly, most likely not, but possibly the last predictions you make before you have a second child. Oh, yeah, possibly. <laughs> to be clear, my wife is doing the hard work at this point. I'm part of the process, but uh, she's got the much bigger task ahead. I don't think many people were confusing that. Well, yeah, just, I don't, I know. <laughs> Honey, I love you and you're amazing. <laughs> it's going to be an epic summer for us, no matter what. It also could be a fairly epic summer for the Formula One circus. And the summer is going to start bringing in what I think could be the silliest of silly seasons we've had in a while. Yeah, once there's a baby Warner in the mix, a baby Lau, I mean, who knows? You know, you got to start them young these days. So if we get our little boys in some go-karts, I'm thinking a year from now, we're going to start to see who, you know, see what's what. We'll have our own predictions league. <laughs> oh, if my son ever says, let's see what's what, I'll know all too well what that means and brace myself. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think Max Verstappen is getting old. I think it's a shame he hasn't retired yet. And I think it's time for some new blood to get in the field. And I agree with you. Maybe it has to be a Warner and a Lau. Yeah, does Kevin Magnuson have a son yet? I mean, he might be in coming up on racing age. I mean, he, Kevin's already 23, so he's probably got a... I would, dude, does he have a grandson? That's the real question. Yeah, Come on. That, that's how that goes. Anyway, on that note, exciting times all around here. We will see uh, exactly when the next podcast will happen, but uh, we'll do our best to uh, to make that happen in the future. Thank you, as always, for listening. Of course, you can visit funwithcars.com, or you can comment on the episodes directly. You, sir, have been putting together nice little articles and opinion pieces between podcast episodes that people can follow along with on funwithcars.com, or you can also subscribe to our Facebook feed, our Twitter feed, all that kind of stuff. There's links to it from there. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can send an email to feedback at funwithcars.com or message us, tweet us, whatever, on the other various social networks that are linked to from there. So thank you, as always, for listening. I am Jim Lau. And I'm Robin Warner. Our next podcast will start with the two.